Welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. On the podcast this week, both Google and Apple have released patches for vulnerabilities being exploited in the wild ahead of Patch Tuesday. Google launches its new privacy sandbox feature, which has raised the ire of several in the community. And MGM Resorts in Las Vegas have apparently been hit by a cyber attack that has severely hampered their operations. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which of course is brought to you by my sponsors. And that includes ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. And of course, also brought to you by NetRig's Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud, or MDM, to remove local admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. First up, this week is Patch Tuesday once again. And Patch Tuesday for September is a little lighter than it was for August, with security updates for 59 flaws including two actively exploited zero-day vulnerabilities. The two actively exploited zero-day vulnerabilities are listed as CVE-2023-36802. And this one is a Microsoft Streaming Service Proxy Elevation of Privilege Vulnerability. Microsoft has fixed this actively exploited local privilege elevation vulnerability that would allow attackers to gain system privileges, which is basically the keys to the kingdom. They could do whatever they want with that. The other actively exploited zero-day vulnerability is CVE-2023-36761, and that is a Microsoft Word information disclosure vulnerability. And this could be used to steal NTLM hashes when opening a document, including just opening in the preview pane, which is actually pretty similar to a vulnerability that was patched a few months ago. This month, there were also some non-security updates for Windows 10 and Windows 11, which do some minor things like an update for a change to Israeli Daylight Savings Time, uh, improves reliability of the search app, and more. And of course, various different vendors also released their own patches aligned with Patch Tuesday. And some actually ended up releasing patches before Patch Tuesday due to the severity and the fact that some of the vulnerabilities were actively exploited. And there were some warnings from the USC, which we'll get into in just a moment. But before that, I also a side note, I saw in the patching mail group, the Google mail group, that there were reports a few days ago of slowness syncing the WSUS service. But it looks like multiple people on the email chain have confirmed that that issue is no longer there. So hopefully if you're hearing this, you're not having that issue because it seems to have been resolved. But there was some slowness earlier on this week with the service. Before we get into some of those other vulnerabilities that other non-Microsoft vendors have patched this month, there was a very surprising story earlier this week. Patch My PC published details about a lawsuit that they faced from Avanti, who sued for patent infringement, which Patch My PC claims was over how a central server delivers update metadata and binaries to an agent and uses the information to decide if the update applies to that device which they point out is how WSUS and Configuration Manager work. But rather than go after Microsoft, Avanti went after Patch My PC. 
The blog post pointed out Avanti have a record of litigating against smaller companies like PatchMyPC and Shavlik Technologies, which integrates with Microsoft's products, which is very interesting as Shavlik Technologies ended up being acquired by Avanti years after that initial lawsuit. PatchMyPC in their account stated that on a call with Avanti, they were given options, sell PatchMyPC to Avanti, pay Avanti a per device licensing fee, or prepare for legal action. And subsequently, they were FedExed legal documents. And a few weeks after the filing, Avanti offered to settle the case if PatchMyPC licensed their patents for $3 per unit. And Patch My PC pointed out that given the fact that their most expensive product SKU at the time was $3.50, they declined their offer. Patch My PC conveyed that this lawsuit drained time, focus, and money that could have gone into their product. There's a lot more drama and tea spilled in the blog post, so I suggest you check it out for yourself. And to CYA for myself, <laughs> I noticed when I first read the blog post and when I read it again, a few hours later, there had been some changes made to the blog post, so it seemed like they maybe didn't have a finalized, so maybe to protect myself, I should say that I am basing this part of the podcast on this story based off of the blog post that Patch My PC themselves published. I saw they were also responding to people on the SCCM subreddit too. I would like to offer my congratulations and commiserations to patch by pc it's great that they won but it sucks that they had to go through that and i guess it's a heads up to any other startups too you know <laughs> if you get contacted by avanti uh, to join a meeting maybe decline that meeting invite and i mean based off of the huge number of startups acquired and now under the avanti brand or umbrella it personally makes me question whether or not some of those companies they acquired were also strong-armed into a deal and did not put up a fight the way that Patch My PC did. Which, to be fair, not taking away from Patch My PC or suggesting anything about them, there could be some startups that were simply not in a position to put up a legal fight that could be drawn out. So all this is based off of claims by Patch My PC, could be one-sided. It's up to you whether you believe it or not, but I'm happy for them that it has been resolved. A zero-day vulnerability that is being exploited in the wild has been patched by Google. The vulnerability is tracked as CVE-2023-4863 and bleepycomputer.com reports that this is a WebP heap buffer overflow weakness with its impact ranging from crashes to arbitrary code execution. The bug was reported by Apple Security Engineering and Architecture, which is SEER, and the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School last Wednesday, September 6th. Citizen Lab security researchers have often found and disclosed zero-day bugs abused in highly targeted spyware attacks by government-backed threat actors targeting high-risk individuals such as opposition politicians, journalists, and dissidents worldwide. Now, while Google said the CVE-2023-48630-day has been exploited in the wild, as is usually the case if you've been listening to this podcast for even just the last 12 months, you will know Google does not share many details regarding attacks or technical details regarding these vulnerabilities and how they've been exploited. 
So unfortunately, the only course of action here is to patch. There's no educated guesswork, workarounds or anything like that, just patch because there's very little detail. Also patch related, the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency or CISA ordered federal agencies to patch security vulnerabilities abused as part of a zero click iMessage exploit chain to infect iPhones with NSO group Pegasus's spyware. So that NSO group is the one that's been developing exploits for iOS for many, many years now. They've been very high profile. This warning comes after Citizen Lab disclosed that there's two flaws that were used to compromise fully patched iPhones belonging to a Washington DC based civil society organization using an exploit chain named VLastPass that worked via pass kit attachments containing malicious images. And yes, that is the same Citizen Lab who discovered the Chrome vulnerability that we just covered. Citizen Lab also warned Apple customers to apply emergency updates issued on Thursday immediately and urged individuals susceptible to targeted attacks due to their identity or occupation to enable lockdown mode, which is something I've also covered on the podcast in the past. It essentially uh, locks down your iPhone to as secure as possible. Makes a lot of the features unusable though, and it's just designed for those who are kind of high profile targets. Patches have been made available for this as suggested. Uh, they were actually released last Thursday, and I noticed at least on my own devices that Apple started pushing them around Sunday night. BleepyComputer.com reported that on Sunday, MGM Resorts in Las Vegas was struck in a cyber attack with some hotel guests reporting that their digital room keys stopped working and they could not charge foods and drinks to their room. ATMs and credit card machines at the resorts were also down with the venues resorting to cash only business. Slot machines in the casinos and their reward systems were also reportedly offline. All MGM websites are also down at the time of this recording, and the landing page is just pointing to various relevant phone numbers for the different MGM offices and resorts. MGM properties include Mandalay Bay, Bellagio, Luxor, MGM Grand, the Cosmopolitan, Aria, Vidara, and New York, New York, all in Las Vegas. MGM confirmed the incident and they stated they quickly started investigating along with leading external cybersecurity experts. I would think that the fact that this is so public and so many people have been affected as patrons of these casinos and these hotels, that this one would be a hard one to keep under wraps. So the best approach is to come out publicly as quickly as possible, admit to it, and give confidence in the fact that you're dealing with it and investigating it and taking it seriously. Uh, I also saw some chatter and rumors online that a different chain of casinos and hotels in Las Vegas was hit with ransomware a couple months ago and that they paid the ransom, which may have actually led to this attack happening. Now that's just speculation, you know. If one big target in Las Vegas gets hit and they pay millions in a ransom, then that makes other victims in the same space more likely because one paid, maybe they'll also pay. Notepad++ version 8.5.7 has been released with fixes for multiple buffer overflow zero days, with one marked as potentially leading to code execution by tricking users into opening specially crafted files. 
The most severe of the flaws is CVE-2023-40031, and it's been given a 7.8 out of 10 on the severity scale. However, a user does dispute that it would be possible to perform code execution using this particular flaw to the type of error that it is, saying that while it's technically a buffer overflow, it really is only an off by two bug with practically zero chance to allow for arbitrary code execution. At least that's according to one user who commented on the GitHub issue that's been open for the flaw. Regardless, obviously if you're using Notepad++ patch, it's nice to see as well that Notepad++ has been seeing more regular uh, updates over the last few months. Google has launched its Privacy Sandbox feature, which is a set of ad delivery and analysis technologies which can enable web developers to call their APIs to deliver and measure ads to visitors with compatible browsers. The register gives an example. A developer may ask Chrome directly what kind of topics you as a visitor to their website may be interested in. Topics that are automatically selected by Chrome from your browsing history so that ads can be personalized to your activities and presented to you. As I'm sure most listeners are aware, web developers and businesses have long relied on cookies for helping gather metrics about who is visiting their sites, how they engage with their sites, and that kind of thing. Well, due to stricter regulations over the years, particularly within Europe, this kind of rich data is no longer possible. Web developers and companies can still garner some details of how many views their website gets and some basics, but those who opt to not allow cookies give very little info away, which is likely what has spurred Google to take this action and launch this privacy sandbox feature. As you may have guessed, and also as I mentioned in the headlines of the show, this has led to calls from some in the community to tell others to move to Firefox because it's basically just finding a way around to still get that rich data and for Google to provide value to advertisers in order to make money and return some of that lost ad revenue due to data privacy regulations. Cisco has confirmed an unpatched zero-day vulnerability that hackers are exploiting to gain unauthorized access to two widely used security appliances it sells. The vulnerabilities reside in Cisco's adaptive security appliance software and its firepower threat defense. Ars Technica reports an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by specifying a default connection profile or tunnel group while conducting a brute force attack or while establishing a clientless SSL VPN session using valid credentials. A successful exploit could allow the attacker to achieve one or both of the following. That includes identifying valid credentials that could then be used to establish an unauthorized remote access VPN session or establish a clientless SSL VPN session. And that's only when running Cisco ASA software release 916 or earlier. Researchers from security firm Rapid7 reported last week that they had observed credential stuffing and brute force attacks against ASA devices since at least last March and the attacks were coming from Akira and targeted devices that didn't have multi-factor authentication enforced for some or all of its users. The researchers suggest the attackers used a list of common account names such as admin, admin admin, backup admin, training, developer, guest, Cisco, Echo, and more. It's currently unknown when a patch will be released. 
And Cisco's advisory said that in addition to enabling MFA and having secure passwords, customers can take more steps that includes configuring a dynamic access policy to terminate VPN tunnel establishment when the default admin group or default L2L group connection profile tunnel group is used, deny remote access VPN using the default group policy control, restrict users in the local user database, lock users to a specific connection profile tunnel group only, and prevent users from establishing remote access VPN sessions. The workarounds aren't possible in all cases, however, and instructions and more details are available in Cisco's own advisory. The most effective protection, according to Ars Technica, remains strict enforcement of MFA since the requirement will prevent access even when an attacker has possession of correct usernames and password combinations. MSPowerUser.com reports that the Windows Insiders build in the Canary and Dev channels, which is version 11.2306.30.0, brings a major change to Paint. Uh, the Paint tool now contains a background removal tool, so you're able to highlight an object in a picture and remove the background. So that's something other kind of more premium paint tools that you have to pay uh, quite a bit of money can do. But it looks like that's also going to be coming to the default paint app within Windows 11 soon. In a pretty crazy story that is not directly enterprise related, Rockstar Games have reportedly been caught selling a cracked game. So a cracked game is uh, kind of a throwback, I guess. Um, most people listening will probably know what it is. Uh, but, you know, if you try to download a game or play a game, maybe rip a game off a CD or a DVD or whatever format it came in, in the past, and you tried to play that on another machine, it wouldn't work because there was like a built-in license mechanism or authentication or verification process that would not allow the game to work. You know, they want you to buy the physical game and only use that game, that physical instance of the game. They don't want people to be able to rip the game and just give it to their friends and not pay for the game, right? Uh, so that's kind of what a cracked game is. Uh, but an avid gamer and an engineer noticed a couple of Rockstar's games on Steam appeared to contain executables, which called a Razer 1911 built program to bypass a licensing and validity check to allow the games to play. It was also found that their popular Midnight Club 2 game executable had a testapp.exe executable distributed with the Steam game that also utilizes a Razer 1911 crack. This is despite the fact that the game is no longer available on Steam. So essentially, it looks like Rockstar Games was using these kind of illegal cracked versions in Steam, presumably because it's a shortcut. They want to be able to distribute or redistribute this via this popular Steam platform, and maybe they couldn't or just simply didn't want to invest the time in enabling that to be redistributed in Steam in that way. BleepyComputer.com reports that, Rock, that Rockstar Games have not returned any comment on the matter. I thought that was kind of interesting, and it's uh, an insight into modernizing and adapting your products to redistribute in these kind of modern platforms. But they took a shortcut for one reason or another, it seems. This could be a tip, to be honest, but Jeff Woosley on Twitter gave a reminder that Windows Server 2012 and 2012 R2 end of support 
is now just one month away. And Jeff provides a Twitter thread full of links with useful information for those about Windows Server 2022. So if you're on Windows Server 2012 and 2012 R2, uh, you're probably going to be paying for extended support or maybe moving some of those to Azure to get the free extended support option. Uh, but you're going to want to look at uh, migration options for the long term. And finally in the news for this week, <laughs> the reason why I'm getting this episode out a bit early, the AVD Tech Fest will be held in Edinburgh, Scotland on Thursday starting at 8 a.m. So registration begins at 8 a.m. And it's chock-a-block full of really great sessions around not only Azure Virtual Desktop, but also Windows 365. And there's just some general kind of Windows and uh, different end-user computing-related topics being talked about as well. Um, so like there's some infrastructure as a code talk. I believe there's James Rankin is doing his Windows profile roaming session. There's application modernization content and much more. And if you're going to be in Edinburgh, you may see me there because I will be there too. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. Well, I just mentioned that James Rankin is going to be doing a session at the AVD Tech Fest this week. Well, James also recently published a blog post on getting started with Citrix UPM containers. And the UPM containers have been becoming an even hotter topic in the last 18 months or so as organizations start to look at alternatives to FS logics and look at profile management solutions to help modernize their desktop management. And in the interest of keeping things short, one final one for this week, the awesome Dan Goff published a PowerShell module for downloading files. And on the GitHub repo, he details the fact that, you know, some of the current options and commandlets for PowerShell for downloading files are slow. <laughs> the invoke web request, for example, very, very slow. If you try to use it, it will download uh, or potentially download files in chunks or blocks that could be very, very limiting and very, very slow. And one that I've been relying on is the web client class, the .NET class, uh, which he points out is deprecated. And I had no idea that it's deprecated, but you can use his PowerShell module uh, that leverages the recommended solution for downloading files. And his module is an easy way to get a module to consistently download files as quickly as possible using PowerShell. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.